The book of Romans has a storied past of having extreme significance to very important individuals in the history of the church. Uh, in fact, if you begin um, in the fourth century with Augustine, that bishop of Hippo, uh, he was a non-Christian, a rabid sinner. Uh, he began to become convicted of his sins and did not know what to do when he found himself uh, seeking God's face. And he heard a still small voice of a little girl saying or chanting, take up and read, take up and read. And he took up and read, and he read from the book of Romans. And as he read Romans 13, 13 to 14, he believed that in that moment he was converted and became a Christian. Now, fast forward 1,200 years. We find Martin Luther, who is an Augustinian monk. He is lecturing on the book of Romans when he discovers that he himself has had a misunderstanding, that the church has had a misunderstanding, the Roman Catholic Church, of the nature of justification, that justification is not by faith and works, but it is instead by faith and faith alone. And it was that doctrine that led to the Protestant Reformation, a major movement that led to us understanding the nature of God's grace. Fast forward uh, another 150 years and we find another significant figure that you've heard of, John Wesley. You might not have known this, but John Wesley was actually a failed preacher, rejected when he found himself in a series of, of Bible studies um, at Aldersgate. And as he was going to listen to the word be read, uh, one day they were reading from Martin Luther's commentaries on Romans. And as he's reading through them, this individual, he's merely reading the preface and introduction when John Wesley begins to see that this is the true gospel and I believe it and I have been saved. That Jesus has died not just for sins in general, but for even my sins. See, this book is a, a powerful book. A book that God has used again and again in the lives of individual Christians, whether through the Roman road to salvation or in and significant events in the lives of Christians throughout church history. But catch this. When we think about Romans, Romans is not a systematic theology. In other words, Paul did not set out just to write a hugely doctrinal book so that you could take it and look up whatever topic you needed information on and then sort of cross-reference and then go and teach on it. No, instead, this is actually a letter that Paul has written in a particular place, to a particular people, in a particular time and season. And it is deeply theological. You might have noticed that this letter doesn't sound much like a Hallmark card, does it? No, this is a, a deeply theological book that is intended to move from the deep theologies of who God is to the pr practical situation that this Roman church finds himself in. So that context is important. Let me uh, look a little bit here as we begin into Paul's setting and context. And then uh, we're going to look a bit at the, the Roman context before we look at our verses this morning. But they're going to help us out. So first, uh, you'll notice Paul's situation. Uh, Paul tells us in Philippians 3 that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, trained by Gamaliel, which was a, a very famed Jewish teacher, he was a, a Pharisee and famed for being a persecutor of the church before 
our ascended Lord Jesus Christ met him on that road to Damascus in Acts 9-4 with a blinding light, asking Paul, stopping him dead in his tracks and saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? See, Jesus tells Saul that for him to persecute his body, the church, those Christians, is for Paul to actually persecute Jesus himself. That's the kind of unity that Christ saw between himself and his people. He was their head. They were his body. And he felt it when people pierced his body. Now Saul was Paul's Jewish name after the famed king, uh, Benjamite king Saul. You remember him? We studied him in 1 Samuel. But Saul was Paul's Jewish name. But in Rome, they actually typically had multiple names. Some have uh, said that what happens in Acts 9 as he's converted is he's given a new name, Paul, instead of Saul. But what's more likely, we don't really see evidence of that, I think, is that this is one of the Roman names that was given to Paul. Uh, he would have been given the name Saul for Jewish context, the name for Paul in Roman and Greek context. And so Paul was also his name. But Paul was both converted and called to ministry in Acts 9 somewhere around 33 AD, soon after Jesus died, was, rose, was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. But we have to fast forward 25 years when we get to the book of Romans. See, Paul has just wrapped up his third missionary journey. We find that in Romans 19. He has fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Now, you might be saying, like, what, what does that mean? Um, think about it this way. If you think about this stage as being east, right, like Scottsdale's that way, right? This is going to be kind of our map because our screen won't show it right now. But it's going to in a few weeks, but not now. And so we start off here in the east and we have Jerusalem. This is the far east. And then he mentions this place, Elycrium, which is essentially where modern-day Albania is, which would be like right here to the west. But what he wants to do, we're told, towards the end of Romans, is actually take the gospel even further into Spain. That would be like that back wall back there, the far, the far west. Now to do that, he is going to need some help. In fact, in Romans 28, we find that he's been taking this Jerusalem collection. He's about to drop that off in Jerusalem and then go to Spain. And along the way to Spain, he will pass by kind of Rome and he wants to stop in and he's hoping that they're going to help him, support him in this mission to this yet uncharted territory. And so he is going to be asking them for help. But there's a situation in Rome that we need to pay attention to as well. See, Acts doesn't mention the planting of this church in Rome that we're about to read about. But we do find in Acts 2 during Pentecost that there were some Roman Jews who heard the gospel and likely went back to Rome and started a church, uh, some teaching on the gospel in the synagogues. And from there, some God-fearing Gentiles as well came to faith and believed. So uh, what we find here is that in Rome, we have a church that has strong Jewish roots. In fact, Luke mentions uh, this, we find this elsewhere in the book of Acts. But what we discover is, is that there was a, a situation that erupted in this strongly Jewish-influenced church, whereby uh, in Acts 18.2, it's mentioned that there was a dispelling of the Jews from Rome. All of them were sent out. An ancient historian, he, he wrote of this in the life of Claudius, 
And he said this, he said that Claudius, the emperor, expelled all the Jews from Rome because they were constantly rioting in the instigation of Crestus. Now that might sound familiar. We, we think that's actually a, a miswriting of Christ or Christus. And the emperor removed Jews, including Jewish Christians, from Rome in 49 AD. Now think about this. This is a largely Jewish church with some Gentiles. And all of a sudden, all of the Jews are cast out. And so that leaves Gentiles. And for six years, only Gentiles mostly are in this church. And it is growing with more Gentiles. And then six years later, Claudius dies, 55 AD, 54 AD. And they're allowed to go back to Rome. So they slowly start filtering in. And what they find is a church that looks different than what they left in the sense that they are like visitors in their own home. Does that make sense? Uh, maybe you've done this before. You've left your church for like a decade. You went home to visit mom and dad. You looked around like everything's different. And this is exactly the kind of experience that these Jews would have had. You could imagine the divisions that arose between Jews and Gentiles. Some in this church, as Paul is writing, likely many of them did not know him, were questioning whether or not Paul was teaching the same gospel that they had believed and believed. And so Paul is writing this letter, I believe, to a church ahead of his visit to Rome to expound the gospel. He wants them to go ahead and hear where he's coming from and have time to think about it before he comes. And he's hoping that he will unite these Jews and Gentiles in the church, thus propelling them to support his mission to take the gospel to Spain. Now here's our big idea for this sermon and the series as, we, as by way of introduction. It's this, gospel unity propels mission. Gospel unity propels mission. I think this is what Paul is trying to accomplish in this letter, and we see some of this in this introduction. So first, notice, Paul's a messenger of the gospel of God. We see this in verse 1. Now, at first blush, as you read verse 1, you might be thinking to yourself that this looks pretty sparse. But if you were to compare this to the other introductions of Paul, you'll find that he actually says a lot more about himself than he does in his other letters. He says that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. That's one. He's called to be an apostle. That's another. And then he's set apart for the gospel of God. See, I think this three-phase description as a servant, messenger, and one who is gospel-bound emphasizes what one commentator calls a prophetic consciousness. Paul understands himself to be coming with a kind of prophetic force. This isn't the, the, the normal kind of letter that you might receive from someone. This is a kind of letter that carries more authority than a merely human letter. Uh, notice that first he says that he is a servant, the, the same word for slave of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. It's a title, I believe, that, that demonstrates both humiliation and exaltation. So he does not see freedom in Christ as freedom from Christ, Paul understands that his will, his actions are submissive to Jesus Christ as his king. He is not acting on his own free will. He is not self-actualizing. He is actually doing the work of his master Jesus. There's a humility to this. Yet, this description also places Paul in line with the other great Old Testament prophets. You'll remember the great servants of the Lord like 
Moses, who's called that in Joshua 14.7, and David and others. See, the description of Paul here is actually exalting him into one of the great, the role of one of the great servants of the Lord in the past. But notice he's also a messenger. This is just adding to that picture, showing him as one who is called to be an apostle. Now, great servants of God experienced a direct call. Men like Abraham in Genesis 12 or Moses in Exodus 3, the prophets. And later you'll remember that the 12 disciples were called personally by Jesus to come and follow him. But here Jesus called Paul as an apostle. It's a word that means messenger. In general, it's just someone who takes a message, someone who serves as an envoy. But as you look in BDAG, a Greek dictionary, they say this of the New Testament in its use of this word. It says it's mostly used to describe extraordinary believers. Believers with the special function is, is God's envoy. They're carrying God's message. So Paul and the 12, apostles, or 12 disciples, they were headlined as the group of apostles. These are the ones whom Paul would later say in Ephesians 2.20 were uh, the household of God. He says of it, it is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. These men speak with a unique kind of authority. This is not a kind of messenger that speaks with the kind of authority that Amazon comes with, right? Or your postal worker. This is a man who comes with the very mail of God. Paul was also set apart for the message of the gospel. See, Paul looks much like the prophet Jeremiah, of whom God says in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So you hear Paul is set apart for the gospel of God. And the gospel of God is, is a word that, that means good news. It is the good news of God or from God. In fact, the word behind it, euangelion, is a, a word that carries the idea, again, of a messenger who would run ahead to announce a military victory as people were waiting to hear word about how their people had done at war. See, the Old Testament prophet spoke of the gospel as well. In Isaiah, Isaiah and his day spoke of a day that was coming when God's people would receive good news or gospel in Isaiah 52 7, where we read, How beautiful are the feet upon, or how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Now catch this, like prophets of old, Paul is announcing that he's, he has been called, he has been set apart to declare the gospel of God, that is good news from God. He is speaking as a man with divine authority, and this is not just any letter. In it we do not just find suggestions or speculations, but true knowledge that you can base your very life on straight from the voice of your creator. Now if you're new to Christianity, and Romans, it, it intimidates you. Don't miss this. Romans is actually unpacking the gospel of God. 
It's giving you a vision of what the good news is that the people of God are so excited about, that which they have given their lives to. See, Romans is unpacking this for us. It is the gospel of God. This is not the gospel of man. In fact, you should often think that as you are listening to it, that the gospel according to God is different to all of the, than all of those gospels of man that I hear, that I hear on talk shows and from psychologists and on the radio as I'm driving to work. This is a different kind of news. It's rooted in a different kind of authority. See, Paul says he is really just an employee of the heavenly postal service, a servant of God, called to deliver God's message of deliverance to us and that message centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ now this is the one of whom Peter declared in Acts 4 12 there is no name under heaven given among men by which by which we must be saved than this one Jesus Christ and let me ask you this morning have you put your faith in that Christ do you know the gospel according to God have you received the most important mail that every human must receive have you believed it have you given your life to it? Well, this is a great place to be over the next coming months as we go through this very letter. Catch what the famed leader of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, had to say about this very book. He says this, this epistle really is the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day is the daily bread of the soul for the more we deal with it the more precious it becomes and the better that it tastes and so I hope that's what happens to us as we are going through Romans I hope that the more that we understand it the better that it tastes so do you want to grow in gospel fluency let's read this book study it hear what Paul has to say but second notice the gospel of God centers on the person of Jesus Christ in verses two to four as I said before, it's likely that mo much of the Roman church didn't know Paul. Some likely did, not many. So it makes sense that as Paul's speaking to them, that he would begin by showing that his gospel, his understanding of the gospel of God, is rooted in the soil of the Old Testament. Now, we see that in verse 2, as well as affirming two quick foundational statements about Jesus, that content of the gospel and verses 3 to 4, he's talking about where his message comes from. So notice first in verse 2 that he says that God promised good news in the Old Testament. God promised good news in the Old Testament. He says this, this is the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And we just saw how the prophet Isaiah promised good news in Isaiah 52.7. But Paul's not merely specifying major and minor prophets when he speaks of the prophets. See, Paul understands the whole Old Testament scriptures to carry a kind of prophetic nature. In fact, this church in Rome seems to have grown out of the Jewish synagogue and even many of the early Gentiles appear to be God-fearers who had converted to Judaism before hearing of Christ. But Paul understood the importance as he's speaking to them of establishing that the gospel of God has roots in the Holy Scriptures or the, the graphe, the writings. Uh, this is a technical term for the authoritative writings of the Old Testament. The, the words which they believed to be the very words of God. And Paul says the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. 
I mean, we need to be aware of teachers that fail to treat the Old Testament as God's words. Or understand the Old Testament as to not be necessary or important for New Testament Christians. Because Paul says the Old Testament is absolutely critical to understanding the good news. In fact, it was just a century later in the history of the Roman Empire that there came a heretic along by the name of Marcion. And he came teaching that the God of the Old Testament with Mount Sinai and all of the thunder and lightning and fear and, and, and all of the law and, and judgment, he, he didn't like that God. And so he got to the New Testament and he started reading about Jesus and the compassion and the, the love. I think he kind of spot quoted some stuff. But he, he started to really love the Jesus of the, Old, of the New Testament and said, you know what? Uh, I, I think that what we need to do is get rid of the Old Testament and believe in the God of the New Testament because they're two different gods. He preferred the Jesus of the New Testament full of love, mercy, and compassion. Does that sound familiar to you? With some of the ways that maybe even some of your friends or colleagues or others look at the Word of God? You know, they're, they're like sort of spot check. Like, I like Jesus and love. I don't like, like, law and obedience. And so they take the Jesus and love, but they get rid of the rest. And he made a, a better Bible, according to his perspective, without the Old Testament. Now, for the next century, great Christian thinkers like Polycarp, Tertullian, and others actually wrote again and again, reminding everyone that that kind of view of God is heresy. It's not just an old problem, though. It's one that keeps resurfacing. In fact, it was just in 2018 that Andy Stanley, who's pastor of one of the largest churches in America, maybe the world, actually made a statement when he was teaching from Acts 15 that he believed that what the Christians were doing was unhitching themselves from the Old Testament. Now, he later backtracked because we understood that, like, that's not historically Christian. But don't miss this. Paul says the gospel of God is much more like an RV than a trailer. Now, this is an imperfect illustration. So don't, like, drive this too far down the road. But the gospel is not a message that, like, you know, the, the New Testament's the truck and it's pulling the Old Testament on a hitch and you can unhitch it or like rehitch it or whatever, and you can you don't need it. You can just drive the truck by itself if you want. No, it's more like an RV, right? That has an engine that like propels and carries itself. And the Old Testament and New Testament go together. They're not meant to be apart. You don't really understand the front part without the back part. Now, again, it breaks down, but you get it. We don't unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. That's not the way that historic Christians have done it. But notice in verse 3, not only that, Paul says. The gospel of God centers on Jesus in verses 3 to 4. See, Paul explains the gospel as concerning God's son. Now, God promised a son to David, who would also be God's son back in 2 Samuel 7, that Old Testament covenantal promise that we look forward to. But also, you'll remember in Psalm 2-7. Psalm 2-7, we have a, a coronation psalm, which is speaking of God's king being recognized and anointed and it's there that, that God said of his king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You'll also remember that both Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3.17 and his transfiguration in Matthew 17.5 come with God the Father himself speaking from heaven, declaring 
This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So the Gospel of God concerns God's Son. Now many scholars believe Paul quotes a commonly held confession or hymn of the early church to confirm that God's Gospel is Paul's Gospel. That Verses 3 and 4 are really quoting a, a kind of confession that was already being used by the church and it had really two statements about Jesus. Uh, the first we find in verse 3 it says there that this son descended from David according to the flesh. Jesus was their expected Messiah, the one who was the Son of God, the one who comes from the literal physical line of David, just like Jesus did. But second, and this one's a little tougher to unpack, verse 4 says that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this is the only time that, that Paul uses this Greek word for declared. It's used elsewhere, but I believe it's better translated appointed. And some take spirit of holiness here to speak of Jesus' spirit of obedience through his life. So you, you, you see that phrase, spirit of holiness. And they say that's basically the kind of spirit of obedience that, that Jesus practiced throughout his life. I actually think that it's more likely that this, this phrase means Holy Spirit. I'm not going to fight you about it, but I think it's speaking of the Holy Spirit. Thus, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, I believe what Paul is saying is that it punctuated his accomplishment of redemption through his life, his death, and, and thus opened up a new day of salvation through redemption and the redemption that it accomplished. So there's a kind of movement that is happening that centers on Jesus raised from the dead. A new day has dawned. Today is a new day. It is a new day where the nations are being drawn in to Jesus Christ, where a new covenant has arrived with God's new king. But how does verse 4 relate to verse 3? Because you'll notice the first one speaks of flesh and the second of spirit, and there seems to be some interchange between the two. I find Doug Moo to be exceptionally clear here. He, he writes of this verse and the way these verses relate to one another, and he says this, the, the flesh-spirit contrast in Paul is fundamental to his theology, and it will continue to be so in Romans. What is key to this text is that the contrast is usually a sil salvation historical one in Paul. Flesh is representing that old era that is passing away. The, the spirit denotes that new era that's inaugurated by Christ's work of redemption and marked by a new powerful work of God's Spirit. See, we live in light of the resurrection of Christ Jesus, our Spirit-anointed King, who has ushered in a, a new and better covenant made up of men and women, boys and girls who have put their faith in Christ and received that same Spirit. Now catch this. Paul and the Roman church don't hold to my truth. They hold to the truth. I think it's just important to take note of what Paul's doing here. In the culture that we live in, it is becoming increasingly popular for people to talk about my truth. As though my truth is determined subjectively. It's not tied to anything outside of myself. I create and come to understand truth 
for myself. I brand my truth. And the only rule in, in this kind of philosophy is that you don't tell me that my truth is wrong. Your truth can be right, even if it's different than mine, and I don't agree with it, and your truth can be right. But all of us have like a, a my truth, and it's equally true to all of us. That's the culture that we live in. In fact, authors like Deepak Chopra and Oprah Winfrey tell us the purpose of life is actually to live out of my truth. That's a, a purpose of life. That's a kind of gospel that culture is peddling to us. You want to know what a happy life looks like? You want to know what the good news is? You can be whatever you want to be, and it doesn't matter what God says. You don't have to listen to God. There's nothing outside telling you what must be true. See, by this, others see truth as subjective, and no truth is more truth than another truth. But here's the problem. We are so inconsistent in our culture, if you just think about that worldview. I mean, if you think about it, there are all kinds of ways that we see how this worldview doesn't quite make sense. So if I self-identify as a pink fairy armadillo, I still have to pay taxes. <laughs> and not all truths are equal. Like at least today, hurting puppies is mostly uncool. But it also translates to views of God. Muhammad and Joseph Smith proposed different belief systems as those who have received what they would claim are authoritative truths from God. So who is it to say that one is more or less true? Well, Paul, speaking of himself and these Roman Christians, says, our truth is the truth by which all other truths must be judged, edited, and submitted. Why? Because Paul delivers the mail of the God-man who died and rose again. If Jesus is alive, if he was truly dead for three days and then lived to tell about it, and we have a host of 500 witnesses in 1 Corinthians 15 that point to the veracity and the truthfulness of the fact that he was raised from the dead, then that means that whatever he has to say means something more than what I have to say. See, death often pictured in the ancient Near East, it was pictured by an actual God idol that was like a mouth, mut. And it was like that because you can imagine, like, as you would die, it was like death swallowed you up and he swallowed everybody up. In fact, there was nobody that didn't got, get swallowed up. Even Jesus was swallowed up. But here's the difference. Jesus walked back out. And Jesus swallowed up death for you and for me who are for in Christ. That's the good news. And Jesus' resurrection means that the prophets and apostles are transcendent truth from humans working with fallen minds in a confusing world. We really can know what's true because God has told us. The Trinity Bible Church, I want us to know that we're a church that can hold a lot of different opinions on a lot of different things. Some of them even medical. But it is the transcendent truth of the gospel that unites us. It is the anchor of our souls. It is the anchor of our unity together. The truth of the gospel helps us see reality as it is. It unites us as one. It is also the message of the truth of the gospel that tells us that God keeps all of his promises because he kept his promises and he will keep his promises. And the truth of the gospel gives us hope. So let me just encourage you. Listen closely to the word of God. 
Take up and read God's word like Augustine. Sign up for Mal's class on the Apostles' Creed starting this Wednesday to understand the historic confession of the faith. Talk to Ryan Fields about how you can find someone to meet up with for one-to-one discipleship. Why? Because we love to sit and marinate over those transcendent words that God has given to his people for life and meaning and purpose. But notice also that Paul says his message propels his mission to the nations. He says this really clearly. He says in verses 5 to 6 that God's son sent Paul for the faith of the Gentile nations in Rome. God's son sent Paul for the faith of the Gentile nations in Rome in verses 5 to 6. I take it, as we look here, you'll you'll notice that he begins with this little phrase, through whom. I think that's pointing back, that that little phrase in verse 5, to God's Son, Jesus Christ, who lives. This is the Son that, that he is still speaking of. And he says, through him, through whom? This Jesus who is alive. This, this Jesus who is not dead anymore. He is the one who is sending Paul. Do, do you see this? He's not, he's not dead anymore. Are we together? He is actually actively sending his apostle. And in verse 5, Paul says this, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. If you're like me, you're asking, we who? I mean, that we really gets things a little bit confusing up front, and we have to kind of answer what that is to understand what he's saying. Well, I actually take this not to speak of a we in the plural, but it's actually, I think, a a literary we. Maybe you could argue an apostolic we. But I think here Paul is with this we referring to himself, the singular apostle Paul, who writes this letter. And I take grace and apostleship not to speak of two things that have happened to him, but one thing, the grace of apostleship, a particular grace. And notice first that Jesus sends Paul to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus' name among the nations. See, Paul begins and ends this letter in Romans 16.26 with this same phrase, the obedience of faith. Now context may play a little bit of a role here to understand what he means by the obedience of faith that he's trying to bring about amongst the nations. So you'll you'll notice as you read through Paul's letters that there's sometimes there seems to be this confusion about Paul's gospel. Why? Because Paul is often going up against people who have a wrong understanding of the gospel. And he's having to get into the nitty gritty of nuance. And when you start to nuance things, you have to use much more careful language. You have to use a lot more precision to make sure we're talking about the same thing. And at times, people misconstrued Paul's gospel of justification by faith alone as a kind of gospel that did not require obedience. In fact, later in this letter, he'll say, what, shall we say that we shall sin all the more that grace may abound? I don't think he's just like speculating there what people might be thinking in their heads, but actually speaking to false claims that have been made about his message. Paul also faced people who claimed that salvation required faith plus works, like circumcision in the book of Galatians. 
And so Paul is constantly trying to clarify what gospel he's talking about. And I think Paul utilizes this phrase, the obedience of faith, to speak of the only kind of true faith. See, true faith seeks to obey Jesus. In fact, Romans 10.16 uses a phrase that speaks of faith as a kind of obedience. He says there uh, that, uh, that faith is for those who are obeying the gospel. Faith is obeying the gospel in Romans 10.16. Now, as you've heard it said, we are not saved by faith and works, but a faith that works. And Martin Luther, writing at one point, says, we are not saved by works, but if there are no works, there must be something amiss with faith. Let me ask you this, this morning, and maybe you think of yourself as a believer, but you're looking at your life and you're thinking like, is there any fruit? And maybe you need somebody to meet with one-to-one to help encourage you that there truly is fruit. But maybe you think that, that faith means that you can come, you can sit, you can listen to God's word, and you can walk away unchanged and never make any change in your lives. Paul would say, along with Martin Luther, that if that's your view of faith, there's something amiss with your faith. Faith, true faith, that's connected to Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead. The Son who gave us His Spirit and raised us to newness of life. It will change us. It will not leave us the same as what we were. And obedience apart from faith does not please God, but faith without works is not true faith. And Paul seeks faith here among the ethnos, the nations, the word used in the Old Testament for non-Jews, people outside of the covenant of God. Now think about this. This is, I think, an important point. Just as you're thinking about the nature of what Paul's very life says about the gospel. This is a man, Paul, who was a zealous Jew. He says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I have received the finest Jewish education. I was the Jew of Jews, the one that you would look to and be jealous of. And it was Jesus who interrupted his journey to Damascus to persecute Christians out of a zeal for the Lord when Jesus stopped him in his tracks in Acts 9.15. And it's there that we find that Jesus gives his purpose for pulling this man who is a persecutor of the church and a hater of God's people. He chose him out, and we find in Acts 9.15 that God says, this is my purpose for him. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry Jesus' name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. As he is saved and swooped up, he's immediately called to go and take the gospel to the nations. See, Jesus turned a persecutor of the church into a preacher and a church planner. If that doesn't give you hope for wherever you are today, I don't know what will. Jesus took a persecutor of the church who beat, imprisoned, and killed Christians, Jesus' people, and turned him into a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. You would have thought like he would have been a great representative for the, the rulers of Israel. And Israelites. But Jesus said, no. I don't care about your training. I'm sending you to the nations. The people far from you. In fact, in Acts, 
Galatians and 1 Corinthians, we know that Paul has not forgotten his origin story. He again and again, as he tells his testimony to others, he says, do not forget who I am. 1 Corinthians 15.9 I am both the least of the apostles and unworthy to be called an apostle because I was a persecutor of the church. See, Paul sacrificed his name amongst the Jews along with his career, his family, his friends to follow Jesus' call to the nations. It was not a comfortable call. This was a painful, costly call. Let me just ask you this. What would cause a man like Paul to sacrifice his good Jewish life to go and tell the nations about Jesus? What would it take? What would it take to cause Jesus' brother James, who denied him every day of his life up until his death, to after his death and resurrection to become a leader of the church? What would cause Peter, who is a man who was cowardly as Jesus went to the cross, running and hiding, running from a little girl to all of a sudden in Acts 2, preaching boldly that Jesus is the son of David that we've been waiting for? These are the facts that have led many to believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ truly happened. A number of my own mentors said one of the things that I just couldn't let go of is this stark reality that there are these people that before Jesus died did not believe him. And Paul, after he died, was a persecutor of the church. And something happened that caused them to change everything. But notice in verse 6, But he includes the Roman Christians in this context too. Did you see this? He says, not only did I come for the nations, but it includes you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You, Roman Christians, who are reading this letter right now. You are part of the heart of Jesus for the nations. Now I'm an apostle whose ministry is to you like the rest of the nations. This largely Gentile congregation is reminded that they belong to Christ and that Jesus, this same Jesus, has sent Paul to them just as he is going to send, them, send him to Spain. See, our, our mission here at Trinity Bible Church, as you've heard it said already today, is to make disciple-making disciples and plant disciple-making churches. As an apostle, Paul played a unique role in this, but Jesus has called all disciples to make disciples of the nations, Matthew 28. And we, like this church in Rome, are part of something much bigger than ourselves. So when we think about sharing the gospel or we think about planting a church, I think the first impetus is to think, like, I need to get my stuff together. I don't know if I'm perfect yet enough to, like, actually share the gospel or to plant a church. I don't know if I have enough money to go and do these things. And yet, here we find Paul telling us that the impetus, the natural impetus of the gospel, is that it propels us to go and share Christ with others, with the nations. This is why we're passionate about missions and taking the gospel to the nations and seeing churches planted here in Arizona, in the United States, and in the nations, in Scotland, in the Philippines, and throughout the world. Why? For what Paul says his motivation was. The glory of the name of Christ. If you are a Christian and you have put your faith in Jesus, it is a new and glorious world that you've been called into in Christ. There will be persecution and humiliation and then the exaltation. But don't miss this. Ultimately, to be a Christian, what it means is 
that our lives are not motivated and driven by our own circumstances and gifts and possessions, but about the glory of Christ. And if we want to be driven by anything at Trinity Bible Church, I I hope, brothers and sisters, that it is a desire and a longing to see much made of the name of Jesus Christ with whom there is no equal. See, we, we know how history ends, don't we? We know where it's going. The gospel invites us into this. That's why we give 10% of every dollar that comes into this church and so much more often to missions. It's because we want to be part of what Christ is doing and what the gospel calls us to. This is why we train pastors in Central America and raise up future pastors here and invest in the gospel going forth. It is not because we want to make much of our name, but because we want to make much of the glory of Christ and His name. But fourth, notice finally, The gospel of God made the Christians in Rome God's people. This is a glorious truth. By this time, the church would have been mixed, but mostly Gentile. And Paul's salutation is this, into that context, to all those in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see this? I I wonder how much we should read into all those, the all and all those in Rome, as in both Jewish and Gentile Christians. But note that he describes them both as loved by God and called to be saints. Now both of these phrases find their ground in the Old Testament with love reflecting that Hebrew idea of chesed or loving kindness. It is a covenant faithfulness that God showed to Israel. And then you find this this phrase called to be saints and this really reflects again on that old testament way that god called israel to be his holy ones he says i am your holy god and i will make you a holy people see god has called a people who were no people to be his holy people in israel and now in rome he says i have called you who are no people to be my people i have put my name upon you you are loved by god he doesn't discriminate or break them up into groups he says you are loved by God and you are God's covenant people in Christ now there may be more to holy ones here Uh, in fact Stephen Woodward he he studied this this term for holy ones noting that it appears in the old testament for celestial beings and sometimes to God's people in the eschatological future like in the future in times but not usually God's redeemed people in the present. It's not how the Old Testament usually uses it. But when you look at it in the New Testament, what's fascinating is he says it's used almost exclusively for God's holy people in the present. And from this he includes the in Christ people, Christians, have been thrust into the final kingdom, ushered into the room of the holiest, and graced with the unprecedented privilege of the companionship of the celestial. There's a real sense in which We are experiencing what Daniel and others only dreamed of even now. And there is more that is yet to come. So in one sense, these holy ones in Rome have already experienced the eschatological hopes of the Old Testament. And he closes an introduction with this last little phrase. A common Christian greeting, grace and peace. You'll notice that if you get a letter from me, it usually has grace and peace on it. Um, and, And basically, this is from Paul and Peter. Uh, They seem to have used this 
Uh, they usually used this form of, of greetings that they, they changed into grace. It was a common uh, Greek uh, sort of salutation. And then Jews usually would end a letter with like mercy and shalom or peace. But they took shalom out and they put grace together. And really in this grace and peace, we have a real picture of the gospel of God, don't we, in that introduction? Grace, this glorious word that speaks of the saving work of God through Jesus Christ for those who are far from him. And peace, to speak of our status in Christ with God. It's that Jewish idea of shalom or joyfulness and peace and security, not just from external enemies, but peace with God. See, these both come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul understands that the gospel of God has made both Jews and Gentiles fully the people of God. In this good news, this means that we too are truly and fully the people of God in Christ. Good news? That's good news. Let me close with a couple of quick applications. First, if you're a Christian, listen close as we go through Romans so that you can grow in your ability to understand and apply the gospel of God. You want to, to become so gospel conversant that you're able to understand how the gospel applies to give life-giving encouragement to other brothers and sisters. That means that you need to study deeply at the well of the gospel. And Romans is a great book to do that. And second, if you're a non-Christian, don't leave without trusting Christ with your life. See, we're going to hear again and again about why it is that we needed peace with God because we were enemies of God. And if you're here today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you're not part of the people of God, but you can become part of the people of God if you put your faith in Christ and what he has done for your behalf. So don't leave without talking to me or someone else about that gospel and without putting your faith in him today. Let's pray.